Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, so this is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Hi, Bradley. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, we're recording this on Friday, January 19th, because uh, I am traveling all of next week. Uh, so we're a couple where of you, days sooner. Where are you going, I'm Bradley? going to... Uh, that sounds such a setup, the way that you said it like that. <laughs> I know, but I, I, meant I was mocking myself and, uh, and the forum. Okay, I'm going to Chicago. So uh, we do a program with the University of Chicago in their business school with our fund where students uh, do projects uh, with our platform team for our portfolio companies. And part of the deal is that I each semester go out there and teach a couple classes. So I'll do that. We're having everyone from our foundation uh, doing voting and hunger meet in Chicago. Uh, It's a nice sort of midpoint for people all over the country. And we'll do a day of planning meetings. Uh, then I'm going to Des Moines, and I'm speaking at the University of Iowa. Uh, the Writers Workshop people asked me to come out there, and uh, I was a little baffled by that because, I, you know, the, the, the least talented person in the Iowa Writers Program is exponentially a better writer than I am. But uh, they seem to like my book, and they wanted me to speak, so I said, Well, sure. one thing I think they, w- they can learn from you, I- even accepting that maybe what you said is true, is the drive to get it done, to, to take an idea from something that sort of popped into your head into all the way through to publication. Like that's something that I think uh, that probably is a really good lesson for, for, for students of writing to learn. Yeah, or maybe they see the career of novelist as so hopeless that they're like, look. <laughs> what else you, could I do? <laughs> you know, you all got to get other jobs. Here's like someone who has another job. And still wrote himself, a book. And still wrote a book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That may, maybe that's You should is. talk about that. I think that's a really good thing. Uh, yeah. and, and then I'm uh, heading down to Miami with the Operation Sandwich crowd for the weekend. But uh, no, but no Operation, Operation Sandwich. sandwich but, I mean, for, no one has even vaguely suggested it. But on the Manjaro, the last thing I'd want to do is even eat like one sandwich, let alone ten. Oh, God, I feel so sad about that. Is, this, is this the end days of, of, the, of uh, Operation Sandwich? Yeah, well, there hasn't been an Operation Sandwich in years. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Everyone just metabolism slowed too much. Yeah. And people's interests. And it's it's a young man's game. Yeah. <laughs> you got to pass the torch somehow. Maybe. Maybe when, when my kids are older, maybe they'll want to take it up. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully their judgment is good enough to not want to take it up. Okay, so do. we're going to talk about many, many different things. We don't have a we don't have a, a, a universal theme exactly for today's conversation. But why don't we just start like jump right in? You wanted to talk about Mayor Adams and the budget, well, and or yeah, let's, let's start with Iowa just because. Oh, you want to talk about well, Iowa? If we go okay. narrow on Adams, then everyone who's not in the New York City government stops listening. So yeah, right. Let's, That's a good let's, point. let's start with Iowa. A little broader. Work our way through. Okay. So. Um, I mean, the, the the main... The Iowa caucus, you mean? Iowa caucus. Right. I mean, the main takeaway is this, which is it, the media and the cycle is sort of so predictable, right? In that they have to have some narrative of here's someone who could possibly theoretically be a real challenge to Trump. And they made that Nikki Haley. And it could have been... Haley or DeSantis or you whoever sort my girl, of... Uh, it, it just... Nikki again. Well, I'll, 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 I'll explain why. Um, so, and... and as soon as the rubber hits the road, there was never any, you know, she's fighting whether she was like distant third or, or, or not too far behind DeSantis in third. But either way, Trump got more than both DeSantis and Haley combined. And not only that, so we're, we're doing a school meals campaign in South Carolina this year and we're polling um, the issue as we do in each state mm-hmm. that we're working in. And I saw the data last night um, and because the South Carolina primary is coming up too and it's Haley's home state. We asked the question, and Trump was like destroying her. It was like oh, three, you threw three that to in one, there. yeah, right. like in her own state. So like 
she was never a contender. And I got to say, all these finance and Wall Street guys that just jump from like, you know, Chris Christie to Tim Scott to Nikki Haley, like they did, oh, we're going to power this but, person. But to isn't the it victory. better than doing nothing? I mean, like, so, so there's this kind of obviously like pervasive fear out there that we're, we're heading for another Trump administration. Like, is it better? Well, to, why like, wouldn't you? So let's say that, let's say they in total gave and raised $10 million for Haley. Okay. Why wouldn't you use that instead to help? Biden or to help to help someone who maybe could be yeah Trump. but there's a, easily another 10 million where that came from I mean it's not like there's the, the resources are but, essentially but, unlimited but, but he's because in a way the media played her up as a threat and then he vanquished her so quickly and easily he's stronger than right. he was a month ago so you don't even support the idea I mean granted it was a lottery ticket but like I, I here's what I don't like okay. is, is the not knowing what you don't know. And I feel like there's some combination of consultants like me who just sell Republican New York mega donors who live in the bubble of all bubbles on these sort of fairy tales that are never true. And like the, the guys who think that they're the most masters of the universe, are like the biggest suckers out there. Um, so part of it is like, it just feels so fucking unethical to do that. Not that I feel bad for these guys and the money gets taken from them, but still. Um, I, it's like a public service, right? And then just part of it also money. is like sort of this like, just weird dichotomy where you have people who feel like, you know, they literally call themselves masters of the universe and they literally think they're running the world and literally, and, and yet are so fucking clueless on the vast, vast majority of people and America and the world and it just sort of makes me realize that, you know, while I would choose to live in New York City ahead of everywhere else, um, we really are not only in a bubble, but in many ways ridiculous. So I know we've talked about this. I think I've asked this exact question before, but I just want to see if it's updated in your mind at all. Someone comes to you, unlimited war chest. What we can, can we do to stop Trump? What do you say? I mean, look, I, first of all, I'm not sure that money, it, that's what we keep thinking is that, is that enough. There's, there's two things we keep thinking. One. The left does this, you know, we've talked about this before. Oh, if the voters only hear about this terrible thing Trump said or did, then they'll get it finally. It'll go through their thick heads and then they'll be against him and Trump won't win. They fucking get it. They understand everything about this guy. They understand exactly who he is. And when they tell pollsters that they're picking him over Biden, they're fully cognizant of all of that and they're making a trade-off. And part of that trade-off includes accepting Trump for who and what he is. So that's, that's sort of fallacy number one. The fallacy number two would be, Oh, our money can can take care of this. Hillary wildly outspent Trump in in 2016. Biden's going to outspend Trump this year. I don't think it really matters. We we live in a world where when both candidates have a hundred percent name ID, which I think they do in this case, um, you know, there's not that much that you can tell them. What, what are you going to tell a voter in an ad at this point? Um, that's going to fundamentally change their view about either of these two guys, right? Oh, if you knock on their door now, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, I was a Trump supporter, but now that you knocked on my door, I'm for Biden. Like, no, all that's bullshit. So, like, there's some turnout efforts in five, six states, 15 to 20 counties that, that probably do make a difference. So that's where you would focus? Well, there's that. But then the other thing would be, you know, what, what Bob Grinley was on here a couple of weeks ago talking about, which is it, the way that I would try to attack Trump um, if I were Team Biden is less about this guy is so terrible and they're, they're like falling right into the trap like he's bad for democracy like again everyone's fucking aware of january 6th so like anyone who's saying that for trump right now is not going to change their view because you say he's bad for democracy they know that and they don't care it's got to be your day-to-day -day life will get worse under this guy in the, right in these very specific ways. yeah like for example if you take his plans for how to handle 
the federal bureaucracy, um, just taking him at his word, we will have ha half as many TSA agents and half as many air traffic controllers. And that means that the TSA line will take you twice as long as it does today. So you have to get to the airport three hours in advance instead of an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, the cost of your flight is going to go up by 50%. Um, and you're going to have you know, half as many options and, and need to make it much more time to get from point A to point B. It, you know, if, if you can keep giving people really tangible examples and keep hanging Trump on the words of his own team, you know, so then it, I think you have something. But, but people right now, rightly or wrongly, believe that their lives were better in pre-2020 than they are today. And as a result, uh, that's why they prefer to bring Trump back. And so it, it's about people's tangible day-to-day -day lives. I mean, it's kind of the Clinton you know, slogan from 1992, which is the economy, stupid. You know? So is there is there a mechanism for keeping that drumbeat going and, and adding to it and, and <clears throat> filling that out and making it sort of vital and dynamic so it's not just like a... Sort of a well, right now there is no no keeping it going. Like keeping it exists in the entirety of this podcast. No, no, I know. Well, that's what I mean. So, what? How do we take the idea that you're talking about and make it like a like a like a fixture in in the in the culture? Is there is there a way to do it? What's is there a new thing? Is there? I mean, like... I, I look my if if I sat down with Team Biden and laid this out, what they would say to me is, "Yeah, asshole, we did not think of that." <laughs> Here's why you're wrong. And then what they're going to do is get into all of their data and sub-data and sub-sub-data that, you know, white moms between the ages of 37 and 39 in this suburb of Phoenix who are left-handed and prefer Diet Pepsi, you know, are the key to this election. And they didn't respond well to the TSA argument at all. And they're just going to tell you why they're right and you're wrong. So I, I, I got to say, like, there is no lack of money or data or brains on the Democratic campaign side of the equation. And I, I really just like, I don't think that voters are going to be like, oh, I didn't know Trump was a bad guy. Thanks for telling me. Now I won't be for him. They're not going to be like, oh, I didn't know that we should just try to impeach him based on sort of substantive policy issues in people's day-to-day -day lives and pocketbooks instead of morality. You know, so, so no, honestly, I, I kind of feel like uh, they're going to do what they're going to do. And, and even if they didn't, they're so driven by the press and your former colleagues are so desperately caught up in the hysteria of wanting to show how righteous they are that they're not going to run with this argument either. So, I, you know, I, I, I have a cold, so I'm a little bit like feeling a little like uh, slow. Despondent the, about despondent the future of America. Slow at the moment. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I have very little faith. I mean, the one thing I do think, and we've talked about this before, would be, the best thing that could happen would be that Biden would choose not to run simply because of this. The 2020 election, the best thing about Joe Biden was people didn't really have feelings about him much one way, one way or the other, right? Yeah. It was just a pure referendum. Sort of a on neutral, Trump. vanilla guy. Yeah, right. just a pure referendum on Trump. Like, he wasn't unqualified for the job, but he also wasn't, like, particularly dynamic or likable in any way either, right? Nor was he sort of odious. He was just sort of this guy who'd been around a lot. Um which meant it took him out of the equation entirely. It was just a referendum on Trump, and more people chose to not want Trump than to want Trump. Now the problem is it's a referendum on Trump, but it's also a referendum on Biden. And you have people. Well, it who, seems like it actually is a referendum on Biden. That does seem to be what I it is. I would say it's both. But like, um, but you know, if Biden had been a wildly popular, successful president, Trump would still be running right now. So I don't think that would change. More. But yeah, all the things that people don't like about Biden or just don't like about their lives in the last couple of years that they attribute to, to Biden. Um, all of that now is in Trump's ca column and category. And if you had just a cipher, if you had Gretchen Whitmer or Josh Shapiro or just sort of a bland, neutral um, Democratic nominee, 
then it reverts to being a full referendum on Trump. Now, and that's your best shot at winning. Now, just on the mechanics of it, because you mentioned before that you have 100% name recognition of Biden and Trump, uh, the Whitmer, Shapiro, they do not have 100% name recognition. Is that just a built-in defect of that plan? I'm not sure that's bad. You know, I think that what, what you want is not the voter saying, like, it's very... Do put, people vote for someone for president who they don't know their name? I mean, it's like... Yeah, they vote on party line. So, and in this case, yes, when, it's, when the question is Donald Trump, people will vote for or against him, but at least you remove the anti-Biden voters from the equation, right? No one's going to be excited about Gretchen Whitmer, but no one's going to be sort of like virulently anti I think Gretchen and her people either. would be very excited. I'm sure they would. Yeah. Um, and again, if in a, in a way, the, the best thing you could do is not decide the nominee until the convention and have the shortest yeah. general election you possibly could. Look, I love could. your plan. I, feel, I almost feel like you should do like... Is it a new form of fiction? No, I guess it's just, it's just like a, a kind of like an, a, like a like a counterfactual before it happens. I don't know what you'd call that, but you it's do... called punditry. <laughs> nice. Okay, so two two small little things yeah. on this issue. I will say this: so I read in, in Deal Book they had their report from Davos this morning, and they said that uh, the Davos sort of sentiment is resigned to Trump. Um, but then they said, and I thought this was kind of funny. Um, the Davos sentiment is renowned for always being wrong. <laughs> so I feel like that's a good, a good yeah. contraindicator. Yeah, I guess. I, I could say one feeling I've never had in my life or one thought is I wish I were at Davos right now. Yeah, no, I, think, I don't think you do wish. Although there's probably some nice food and accommodations there. Um, anyway, the, the other thing is, so on, on one of our year-end podcasts, you made the prediction that neither Trump nor Biden will win the election. Yeah. Are you, are you, are you sticking I with mean, that? Or are you starting to you back know, away? I mean, it, look. It, I, I know you why you made that, but. Yeah, uh, I'm still going to hold out some level of hope that at some point Biden will reach the conclusion that, not based out of the, his concern for the greater good, because he's a politician, that's all he cares about, but. Um, that his own legacy would be so destroyed by losing to Trump that he's better off avoiding that fate and that he can much easy, more easily get away with pardoning his kid. Because his kid is clearly... Look, do I think that Joe Biden was, was in on Hunter Biden stuff and, and taking money? No. But do I think that Biden ex extremely knew and helped Hunter um, get lobbying business? Um, to take advantage of Biden's name. Yes, and you know why? Because Biden's fucking old, and that was the culture in Washington forever. That soft corruption is not only that it wasn't considered problematic, they consider it their entitlement, that, that they're due, right? This is part of the spoils of winning elections, is that your family can get rich off of lobbying uh, based on their access to you and based on their last name. And so like Hunter Biden's probably guilty of just about every fucking crazy thing the New York Post is accusing him of. Um, and if you don't want your kid to go to jail, the nice company president, you can pardon him. Um, but as we know throughout history, when the president pardons someone um, who is clearly guilty and they do it just because they can, um, the voters fucking despise that. So look, Biden could do it anyway after the election. Um, but I think if he loses and then does that, like he's really going out on a low note. And if he wins and does it, he's got sort of a new problem that he created for four years. And he can't wait till the end of the second term to do it because um, Hunter will be in jail by then. So uh, I, I think that maybe the ability to save his kid and to save his legacy will at some point sink in. Plus the other thing is he's just so old that like he could fall today and break a hip and that's the end of its candidacy anyway, right? So like we also just like, and this is also why it's so dangerous for me on the ticket, he just gets older every single day. Just like us all. Um, so here's my question. Do you think, 
that there are influential people in the Biden campaign and or administration who have had discussions about this, certainly not with, maybe not with him. I'm sure with each other. Yeah. I mean, again, these are smart people and and overall they don't want to lose. Right. So I'm sure there are some people who are just career Biden types and it's Biden all the way and their own money and power and validation and ego is totally tied up whenever they can get from Biden and Biden is a retiree offers a lot less to them than Biden as president of the United States. So I'm sure those people are just gung-ho, you know, run, run, run. Right. I'm sure there are other people in that orbit um, who have certainly had these conversations, whether they've had them with him or not, I, I don't know. Um, but it doesn't really matter because unless he reaches that conclusion, uh, it's all irrelevant. What you haven't heard is of some super prominent close Biden advisor making the case for him to not run. Now, that maybe that's happening in secret and we're not aware of it, but I think more likely they're just all, you know, telling him what he wants to hear. How much do the, in your view, do the odds of the Democrats winning go up if it goes from Biden to, say, let's just say Whitmer? Oh, a lot. But let's just say... 25%. So it goes from what to what? It goes from right now, it's like a 40% chance of winning. It's like 52. But it's... it's, it's, uh, the 25 would mean if, right. it goes up, if it goes up 25% above the 40%, not 75 So, so it's, just, it's still almost a coin toss. Yeah, but I think that I would, I would think that you have a decent shot of winning the election in, the, in that scenario, whereas it's hard for me to see. Again, there are black swan events, and so maybe something will change. But absent something that we just can't conceive of happening, it's hard to see why the direction will change. Um, and it's funny, you know, I, I saw a story in the journal this morning that Americans sort of seem to feel better about the economy. And there was a lot of data showing that consumer spending is only ever increasing. Um, and yet they're convinced that the economy is bad. And the two things that they look at are gas prices and food prices. And those are super volatile. And the world is more volatile than it's been in 75 years. And so I just think that, you know, you have this giant risk of, um, the the bad image of Biden being sort of ineffective around the economy, getting reinforced by just, you know, malicious strikes by the Houthis, you know, on oil tankers in the Middle East or whatever it is. So, um, I you know, I, I, I clearly think that the odds would go up. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I feel like I'm having conversations these days with people, someone yesterday, where it was just the more mental self-preservation of like, yeah, this is probably, maybe it's like what you're saying at Davos, right? This is probably going to happen, and I can't spend all my time thinking about it because it's just too fucking depressing. <laughs> Should we switch to Mayor Adams? I think we just depressed everyone and they turned yeah, it off. seriously. Oh, God. Um, well, the Adams story is super uplifting at the moment, right? Yeah, it's a weird one where he, um, a couple of months ago, announced that the city budget deficit was, you know, sky high, seven or nine billion and that we would have to make all of these cuts to balance the budget. Uh, and there would be cuts to education and public safety and sanitation and all of these other things, right? And then uh, the view was he did that as a way to put pressure on Biden to provide federal money for the migrant crisis because it is true Biden has fucked up the immigration thing royally. Uh, you know, 150,000 migrants have shown up in New York City. Adams has been providing housing and, and food for all of them. It is wildly expensive. Um, and as a result, the city budget is under a lot of pressure from it. Um, Biden didn't blink because, you know, Adams made the wrong argument, right? You know, it, just saying like, oh, I'm going to make you look bad from a policy perspective in New York, it doesn't fucking matter. Biden's not going to lose New York. 
Um, and what Adams needs to do, and I said this at the time, is you have to scare Biden politically, right? So go, you know, Biden can't afford to lose a single additional African-American vote. So Eric Adams, instead of complaining to the New York City media at City Hall in New York, go to Black Church in Philly and Milwaukee and Detroit and Atlanta, go to the swing states and start making the case. So like, look, this guy really is not doing his job for the community. Um, and if they start, if that had any impact at all, and it would get a lot of press, that would scare the shit out of Team Biden. And guess what? They'd find the money somewhere. <laughs> and maybe it would come to New York in some other form and it'd be fungible in some way, but they'd fucking find it. Um, but unless they think that you in some way further imperil their chances of the election, they're not going to listen to that, you. That seems like the kind of game, I mean, it is a game that Adams would enjoy playing. So, Well, it, except here's, here's why he doesn't, you know, for all of his swagger, why he won't do this is, okay, so he goes out there and he says in Philly, Joe Biden's a disappointment. Donald Trump in November wins Pennsylvania. There will be tons of people saying Eric Adams cost us the election. Right. right? He that you have to be willing to take that hit. Right. Now, if you are a polit- if you're an elected official and not just a politician, you said my only job here, my only goal is to get the most for and do the best for New York City, regardless of any of the consequences. To me, you would do that, right? Um, but if it's, you know, this is one job and I plan to run for more offices going forward and, you know, I'm going to need to sort of be on a political sinecure in one way or another my entire life, you know, then you're not going to do that. And the fact that you know, what no New York City mayor seems to understand is no mayor of New York has ever won a fucking election after being mayor. I mean, even the Blasio tried running for Congress from his home district and came in like sixth in the primary, right? Mike lost the presidential, Rudy lost the presidential, Cotran for governor, Lindsay. I mean, there's so many examples over and over again. So Adams is not going to be anything else after this anyway, and yet he thinks that he is. And so while the best way to leverage the election to get money from Biden would be by going at him politically, Adams isn't going to do that. But then what happened was he went at Biden sort of substantively. It didn't work. And then Quinnipiac polled, and his numbers were the lowest of any recorded mayor in, in, in history at a 28% approval rating. And they panicked and said, oh, shit, people must be really upset about all these budget cuts. We got to reverse them. So now they've been going around the last few weeks and saying, oh, you know what? We were just kidding. We're, we're not going to do this one. We're not going to cut libraries. We're not going to cut police classes. We're not going to cut sanitation pickups. You know, they keep finding the money to restore it. Um, and the crazy thing is, not just sort of how badly the gambit failed, but the budget was introduced this past week. It gets negotiated over the next couple of months with the city council. I think in June it has to be passed and enacted. And it makes no sense to restore the cuts now. At least wait until June. So you're going to have to give the council a pound of flesh anyway. I mean, the traditional budget game everywhere is you take some money out for things that councilmen care about, libraries and parks and community stuff and whatever else. And then they fight to get it back in the budget, which you've already factored in anyway. And then that's the final budget, right? Even fucking de Blasio figured that out. But now, because he already restored all these cuts, he's going to have to get the money on top of it, which means we're going to be in a budget fucking crisis. Where if at this point, once he made this, that dumb gambit with Biden, if he just stuck to it and said, okay, uh, we're going to, um, you know, negotiate this with city council like yeah i guess in theory you're letting the city council win but ultimately you're costing yourself less money and and look less foolish and he had all these terrible stories this week about how like this guy doesn't even seem to understand that the basic budget dance which is like politics 101 and where is like i mean i guess i still don't understand the, the 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 revenue issues for new york city like just how bad are they how 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 much is the 
sort of commercial real estate sort of quagmire going to drag everything down? It hasn't yet to the level that people have feared. Right, expected, yeah. Um, it's not clear if... Now, look, tax revenue is down and things like um, sales tax collections from the central business districts of Manhattan are certainly down. So I walked through Midtown yeah. yesterday and it was kind of frightening. Just was how empty? It was really empty, but it, it was funny. Well, the weather was really bad, though. Yeah, well, it wasn't. I mean, it was a little cold, but just it had that. It, it actually felt like a Sunday. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like there, there were people. Like, I, I walked past the new uh, J.P. Morgan building. Yeah. And across the street where they still have an office, I just stood there for a minute, just like two or three minutes, and I saw one person. This was like at 10 o'clock or even a little before, like 945. Like, still sort of the tail end of, like, when people would be getting to work or something. Yeah, no one was there. And there was just, like, nothing, nothing yeah. going on. And I yeah. was like, this is J.P. Morgan, too. This is, like, right. you know, these are the people, this, they hold the paper for all that shit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so a- a- anyway, I, I just think that uh, it was a, a bad week for Eric Adams. Um, oh, it's too bad. Um, well, let's, 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 we, we're going to have to um, hope for a better week and, and, and check back in with him. But let's talk... Um, do you want to talk about the Samsung AI phone? Well, Did you look at oh, that? Yeah, but o- only in the sense that the question you asked me, yes. and my answer is going to be so like 2004. That's okay. It, so the question I had, so yeah. the, the, the Samsung has a new um, mobile phone that has all these really cool AI features. One of them, which is like a, a, a real-time translation feature, like you can literally speak to someone like who's speaking Japanese and, and it comes in in English and you can talk back like... And the person writing cool. the story for the Wall Street Journal was like, it actually worked pretty well. Like, it was kind of shocking. Anyway. Right. It's not, by the way, you're not, I guess we're not in that situation that often because we live in the country where we, we're native speakers of the language. Right. And English is sort of the most spoken language. I mean, yeah, yeah. May, maybe Hindi or Mandarin is just based on population, but ultimately in the, in the places that we would go, uh, English is so widely spoken. Like, in most parts of the world, at least when you're dealing with people in a service capacity, yeah. they speak enough English. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know what would really make my life a lot better and easier? The BlackBerry keyboard. Like that's the, a tactile keyboard where I can God, that feel is what I'm typing. I know. That, there's no AI like, in that, man. <laughs> it, whatever. I'm just saying like it is, I have yet to be at figure. So I've, I've been using the the non for at least a decade more, 15 years, whatever and it you is. you still hate it. I still hate it. Yeah. And I, I still screw up all the time. Shouldn't and you start a little company that makes them? They have that. And then... Um, I bought like 20 of them on eBay, actually. And then Apple sued, and they, Apple won, or maybe the other company sued and Apple won, but Apple won either way. And the product, Apple has to make the product compatible with its, right. o- with its operating right. system, and they don't choose to do so. So Apple basically has to make like an iPhone for business or whatever. And do you it understand is. the business decision not to do it? I mean, I, I just assume that they don't think there's a market for it, and, and it may be in some level, but they make it, it incompatible the, with the like aesthetic of of Apple, and they're so wedded to the aesthetic of, of to, in terms of their overall brand that that it is the right business decision. But you know, if you said to me like, what's one simple thing? Like, I have a you know an iPad with a keyboard, and I use it constantly because. It's just like literally if I'm at home and I've got my phone with me and I need to send one, some, someone to text or an email that's more than six words, I'll go into the other room and get the iPad with the keyboard right? because it's ultimately faster to, to do it that right. way. Right, well, but, but that's the, the reason. So those keyboards for the iPad work great and they have a whole bunch of different like models and ones that yeah. kind of fit into the case and all that shit. Yep. But like they don't fight it on that. Like, yeah, so, I, don't, I don't know. No, it, w- it, would be, it would be great if I could buy a little keyboard for my phone. 
um, and do it the way I do my iPad, I would pay for it in a heartbeat. Do you think we should get Tim Cook on the podcast and just kind of grill him on this? Yeah, he's always trying to get on the podcast. I know. I'm kind of tired of having him on already. They're always begging us. It's kind of desperate. So, <laughs> nah, fuck him. Um, okay, so so the fancy new feature you want is an old fashioned typewriter, yes, keyboard on your on your iPhone, yes. Okay, that's. I mean, it's a it's an interesting answer. I think it reveals a lot about you and not bad things. It just just it's, mm, you know not good things, <laughs> but. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed this podcast uh, that I read about on Marginal Revolution, even though it's a, it's a very popular podcast, Freakonomics, but about heard of it. fraud in academia. Yeah, um, which I thought was. Uh, I mean. Again, Freakonomics is a fantastic podcast, and one of the reasons is they just they they'll take something like this, which is a question that's out there, people talk about it, whatever, but then they really kind of do a, a smart and kind of like very satisfying treatment of it, which I and think was this case. Yeah, yeah. And, and in this case, they were specifically talking about some professors at Harvard and Duke uh, who looks like fabricated evidence um, in a study, ironically, in a study about honesty. It was a study about that showed it was a behavioral kind of psychology uh, paper, and it said that if you ask people to sign and attest to something at the top of the page, there's a greater compliance rate than the bottom. This of the is page. Dan Ariely, right? Dan Ariely from yeah. Duke, right? And the woman and uh, Gina. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the Harvard from, person, from Harvard, right? And it became, you know, very well known, and companies started using this all the time. Um, and then it turns out Francesca Gina, Francesca Gina, right? Yeah. That that um, they fabricated a lot of the data. They still deny this, um, but it seems very, very. Everyone else who was involved or looked at it is is abundantly clear that they did fabricate the data. So they lied about a study about lying. Um, and the real point of the podcast, I definitely recommend it, was you know the same thing that we talk about every time of this podcast, which is you know human nature. Like politicians are the way they are, because they desperately, desperately need to be recognized for their work and reelected and kept in office, and therefore they will say or do whatever it takes to do that. And the point of the, their, their economics podcast was like, all of the human nature incentives in academia ultimately really are to lie about your data because if you have a big discovery, that's how you become a star in academia. That's how you get attention. That's how you publish papers. That's how you get grants. That's how you get tenure. That's how you get on you know podcasts, all this other shit. Um, and it's not that often that someone catches you, right? And so a as a result, there's a huge incentive uh, for people to fabricate their data. The, you know, maybe some are more blatant than others. Maybe this one was more blatant than others. Well, that's but, the, but they, they gave other examples too. You're, well, that's the thing that I think is, is truly, uh, I guess, disturbing about it is that, so you have those sort of the Gino and, and, and Ariely, these kind of high flyers who are like, you know, at the very top research institutions and doing this like fraudulent work. And then you, what the bigger problem is that like they have that they, they talk to this professor runs something called the reproducibility project and they'll go in and they, they'll reproduce the, the experiments that a lot oh, of these yeah, social scientists work. do. And the, and the, the reproducible rate is like less than 50%. Yeah. So it's, it's like, it's like now how many of those people are, you know, it doesn't mean each one of those people, like each one of those studies is a fraud, but it does. A, a good number of them certainly are, and like it, it, like the whole thing is just rampant throughout the whole. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it. Which is, you know, in in most industries, right, a, a lawyer making the case for her client is gonna use the testimony and evidence that that best presents it for them. Uh, a journalist, because they want to make a you know a certain point in their articles, uses quotes from people that best sort of say what they want them to say. I've had journalists call me and say, you know, I want you to say this in the quote, right? 
Um, and it's like, no. But, you know, but most people, I think, just say yes because they want to be quoted in the article, right? They want to see their name in the newspaper. Um, so, you know, people in all kinds of other industries definitionally do this. So the fact that academics who we think shouldn't do it because the, the rely all of the underlying value and truth of academia is based on the reliability and honesty of the data one way or the other. Um, but they have huge incentives. The odds of getting caught are pretty low. These people did, but typically they, they wouldn't. And so, you know, the real takeaway is a lot of these studies that we read about, um, there's a decent shot that they're wrong for one reason or another. Let's do one more topic and then uh, we'll let you go on your way to Chicago. Okay. Um, Germany has criminalized the slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Apparently you can go to jail for saying that now in Germany. Um, is that a good law? So my instinct is no, simply because I still believe in freedom of speech, right? I still believe in the First Amendment. And while I believe that someone who's saying river to the sea is also saying, I hate Jews, I'm an anti-Semite, and if Jews were wiped off the planet, I would be okay with it, because to me, that is tantamount, one or the other. Um, Germany's a different case, right? And the, Germany has put a lot of work into, I think generally in a pretty good way from what I've seen, really try to change their society post-World War II, post-Holocaust, and make sure that something like that never happens again. And as a result, uh, I think there have been more laws that are prescriptive or arguably take away rights or whatever else because they are so terrified of themselves, right? They're so terrified of, you know, and they, they still have sort of right-wing groups in Germany that are constantly trying to bring back the, you know, the fascist regimes. And so um, I, I think that if it were here in the U.S., despite what that the, that saying means, would I vote in a national plebiscite to ban it? Probably not. Um, do I think that in the context of Germany, given their history and the fact that they, I think, have been successful in, you know, creating a post-war society that, you know, has been a, a lot better, um, I, I would think that they know what they're doing and I would stick with it. Okay. Um, you don't have any recommendations this week, right? You had four last week, and we kind of talked about the podcast. Week. Yeah, I just read this book, Argyle, which is about to become a major motion picture, too. A major motion picture. <laughs> and it's like a spy thriller. Is that, do those still exist, major motion pictures? I think it's on Apple, but yeah. Okay. Um, Argyle. And uh, it was okay. Just okay? Yeah, oh. I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. It wasn't bad, All right. but it wasn't good. All right. Um, have a great trip, Bradley. I'll see you next week. Thank you. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PET Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PET Network.